Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I want us to start this morning by looking at a pair of imposters, Bell and Nebo. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, my guess is that none of us know very much about Bell and Nebo, um, and that's fine because we're about to learn from Isaiah 46 exactly who they are, or rather, who they aren't. Uh, two imposters, Bell and Nebo, and decide for yourselves whether you're impressed or severely let down by these imposters. This is what we find when we meet Bell and Nebo. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols, that's it, the statues that represent them as gods, are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. Notice the repetition there. I don't think that's by accident. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Verse 6 picks it up. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it on their shoulders, and they carry it, and they set it up in its place. And there it stands, and from that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Bell and Nebo. Were you impressed? I doubt it. The description is not exactly a glowing description. And as I said, our series is supposed to be God is. It's supposed to be looking at who God has revealed himself to be and why that's really good news for us. So why are we interested in these two false gods? Why are we interested in these two characters who were famous for a time in Babylon and places like that, but otherwise have been obliterated from history? If you were paying attention to that description that was read out of them, it kind of reads like a, um, a manual on how not to be a god, doesn't it? What's revealed about these gods isn't in any sense of the idea or the words good news, is it? It's not a positive description. It's not something that's going to tantalize. They've got exotic names, and that is about all that they've got going for them. They they show themselves to be a total and utter waste of time. I came up with a list of things which, on reflection, I thought we could conclude about these two false gods. They are weak. They are worthless. They are mute. They are motionless. They are powerless and pathetic. They are burdensome. They are ineffectual. And they are costly. So why do we care? Why do we care about two ancient gods who had probably beautiful little statues, who Isaiah comes along and describes in such irreverent terms? Why do we care? Well, I think we should care at the start this morning because really they could be a description for all manner of things that we have in our lives. We might not carve out posh little statues. 
We might not have specific little altars that we go to in our homes or in our communities where we worship false gods like Bel and Nebo. But nonetheless, they are, I think, a great example of so many things that we have in our lives which we put in the place of God, which we put on a pedestal, metaphorically, if not literally, that we put our hope and our satisfaction and our trust in. That's what the people were doing with Bel and Nebo, if you think about it. It was speaking about people carrying literally these statues around, and if they were close enough to these statues, that they would feel safe. Or when their villages, when their towns, when their cities came under attack, they would flee to the statues, thinking that proximity to the statues was going to help them somehow make their life better, somehow get them through their darkest days. Now, we probably... And I say probably, there's a a chance maybe somebody still does this in this room. But we probably don't do that literally with a little statue and some idea of a God of something rescuing us. But we do it with so many things, don't we? Relationships are massively important in our lives. And we pin hope and trust and security and satisfaction on relationships, don't we? We think if that relationship is secure, then it doesn't matter what else happens in my life. I'm okay. That person, that individual, could be kind of like a romantic relationship, a marriage. It could even be a friendship that we think is really solid and stable. And we think it doesn't matter how dark the days get, as long as that stands, I'm okay. I think that ultimately is a description of the hope that we're putting in relationships. It could be something materially, couldn't it? Um, Our homes are so important to us. We put so much stock and emphasis on owning our own homes, maybe. Of having a home that's safe and secure and warm and dry. And look, none of these are bad things. My hunch is that the statues that they carved out for Bell and Nebel were beautiful statues. From an artistic point of view, they probably were great things. From a monetary point of view, they were costly. They were grand to look at. They were nice. But they were totally and utterly useless at being gods for people. And so we look at Bel and Nebo, and Isaiah and the Holy Spirit through Isaiah reminds us of Bel and Nebo because really we should, in seeing their shortcomings, see the shortcomings of the things that we tend to lean on and trust in rather than God. We might be able to spot these sorts of things in the people, in the circumstances, in the positions that we put so much stock in. But I think there's a, there's a more important reason why we can see them and why it's important to look at them before we come to understand who God is. It's because in seeing their utter incompetence, in, in just taking for a moment um, the, the time to think about how silly and daft and useless a statue is at rescuing you, we glimpse something of the God of the Bible. When we see how useless they are, we see in reflection almost, how useful the true God is. Because everything they are, he is not. Everything that we conclude about them, we cannot conclude about the true God of the Bible. Verse 3 puts it like this. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all you remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Notice there, there's there's a neat little flip, isn't there? Um, the statues of Bel and Nebel were described as being put on people's shoulders and carried around. But here God is saying, I'm the one who carries you. 
Even to your old age and your gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. These are all things that Bel and Nebo can't do. Verse 5. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Yahweh. You see, when we recognize the shortcomings of these false gods, when we own up to how limited the things that we put weight and stock in in life are, we learn something of the true God, that everything they are, He is not. With every scathing review of their ineptitude, we can confidently conclude that God is not so. He isn't carried, is He? His description is being one who carries us. He isn't someone who gets taken away, gets plundered, uh, sold off into slavery. He is the one, he says, who rescues. He doesn't need people to take him from place to place. He doesn't need to be melted down and crafted by craftsmen. He is the one who has made us. We are in his hands, and he carries us, he says, from before our birth to after our death. He is not weak. He is not worthless. He is not mute, he is not motionless, he is not powerless, he is not pathetic, he is not burdensome, he is not ineffectual, he is not costly. The big picture is that these so-called gods do not save, not in the slightest, not even like by chance, by coincidence. In fact, they make things worse. As people flee to them, hoping that that's going to be a safe place, they're just in the worst place that they can be. Yahweh is different. Yahweh is the one who saves. Remember this, verse 8. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey and from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Do. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. That's what God reveals about himself. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. John opened up with a reading from Psalm 93 where the psalmist compared God to the might and the power of the oceans and its waves. And the conclusion there was basically, they don't measure up. Isaiah 46 is holding up El and Nebo, and blatantly the conclusion is, they do not measure up. I'm holding up things like relationships and, and material wealth and positions and power and experiences even, and suggesting that they do not measure up. God declares, I am God, there is none like me, nothing else measures up. God is completely and utterly incomparable. So is that our God is this morning? Is that what we're supposed to see and understand and learn about God, that he is incomparable? Well, I mean, that's true, and that's a good thing to go and to take away. But I think actually in trying to compare him, we, we learn something that's far more precious 
and far more useful for us. Listen to these words again. Feel the force of these. I am God declaring the end from the beginning. It's me, not, it's me, God, not anybody else, not with anybody else's assistance. He says, I am the one who decides the whole of history. It's a beautifully poetic way that is put from as far back as you can know to the very ends of days. What has happened and what will happen, that is me, declares the Almighty. I say, I say, no one else. It's God alone, just one vote, his will, his mind. He says that his counsel shall stand and he will accomplish all of his purposes. That's in verse 10. I, says God, will do as I please. My purpose, my will from the beginning to the end. Me and me alone. Do you see what God is declaring about himself here as he is seen to be incomparable? He's revealing to us that he is in control. I think one of the most obvious things we can state about ourselves is that we are not in control. Now, the idea of being in control seems wonderful to me. I wish that I could speak. I wish that I could decide and things just were. I wish that the relationships that I had meant that I was in control. People listened. I wish that the position that I held, the power that I have as a pastor of Amford Evangelical Church, meant that what I said went. I wish that I had the things, the means, the money to say and for things to get done. I don't, and I don't think I'm alone there. Neither do you. But God is declaring here with a big, loud voice. He's booming to anybody who will listen. I am in control. What I say goes. God is in control. What does that mean? Well, I think it means a few things. It means that there's no committee when it comes to God. There's no turning of his head either. Think of it like this. God doesn't operate by taking in advice and suggestions from all corners and all quarters. God doesn't need to work off a consensus or a majority vote. And if you think those things are good things, well, then just look at the state of politics in the UK at the moment. They're not good things necessarily. God does not and will not decide how things will work out after he's tried something and received feedback on it, after he's tested it or gone to focus groups. It's God's will and it's God's good will that shall be done. God being in control, declaring what I say goes, means that he keeps his own counsel and he isn't coerced into action by any outside, outside agencies. He's free to make up his own mind, to come to his own decisions and to have his own will, not to have someone else's will imposed upon him. You think if the opposite was true, it would be terrible news, wouldn't it? It would be suggesting that God could be tricked into action. It could be suggesting that God could be pressured into action. It could be that God was dependent on the wisdom and the knowledge and the goodness of other people to inform him in the right ways in order to make the right decisions. That would be terrible news. 
that would be to suggest that God might change his mind about stuff. Having declared that he loves us, that he uh, is going to rescue us and save us, that he's promised us a wonderful, glorious, everlasting future, that perhaps somebody could come in and change his mind. But that is not who God declares himself to be. He says, I am the one. I do what I please. Remember Bel and Nebo? They went where they were told. They went where their owners took them, where they were taken. Their very life and existence wasn't up to them, but was determined by outside agents. Not so with God. Nothing is thrust on him. Nothing is forced on him. He says he's in control. But more than that, it speaks of God not just deciding, but having the, the power to carry out that will. What I say goes. We can all make up our minds, and we can all be very stubborn in that sense. That's not necessarily good news. But God, having settled on a course of action, has the power and the force to carry out exactly what he has decided to do. He doesn't need to go elsewhere to get stuff done. That's, that's amazing. There are a lot of people with a lot of power in our society, people that we are expecting to make decisions, people we are expecting to implement them and to lead, politicians, maybe we don't think much of them, um, the police, we've been praying for them this week, haven't we? Um, bosses in work situations, you're desperate for them to make up their minds and just go for it. And yet one thing that they all have in common is that they need other people to implement those decisions, don't they? Even in our own lives, when we make a decision very, very often, if not exclusively so, we need other people to go along with it. You make the decision that you're going to get healthy, you're going to get fit in the second half of 2019. That's fine. Is that something you can do on your own? Perhaps. Perhaps that will involve someone else covering for you in a, in a work or a social or a family environment so that you've got time to go and exercise. Perhaps that will mean somebody who you live with buying into the same sort of ethos and eating the same sort of foods as you. Perhaps that will mean not just you going for it on your own, but having people around you who will encourage you and champion this thing that you've decided to do. You'll need other people in order to accomplish it. Not so with God. If he says it will happen, we can have confidence in his in-controlledness that it will happen. And that's good news when we consider other things about God and the things that he has declared that he will do for us. What I say goes. This all makes total sense, of course, when you think about Jesus, doesn't it? When, it, when we consider the life of Jesus, the things that he said and the things that he did, how he acted, who he was in the circumstances that he was in, the purpose, the will, the power to accomplish... In Ephesians chapter 1, we read some magnificent words about God planning our rescue from before the foundation of the world. God chose us, it said, in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, it says, he predestined us for adoption 
through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It's a dense, dense sentence that. Uh, the late Eugene Patterson rephrased it like this. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. It can perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable to talk about God who, who makes up his mind and he, and he doesn't take advice from other people. But when we see and we recognize what it is that God made his mind up to do, then that's, that's thrilling news, isn't it? He had it in his mind. He had settled on this long ago to focus his love on us, to make us whole, to make us holy to put us into his family through Jesus Christ. No matter how far we fell, no matter how much we rebelled, no matter how much we might kick and scream against it, God is in control and what he says goes. And he has decided to rescue us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could not have that purpose budged from their minds. And then Jesus comes the eternal son born into the lowliest circumstances, into filth, into squalor, into poverty, and immediately evil forces try to hunt him down, try to crush him and snuff him out before the right time had come. But they couldn't. Why? Because what God says goes. They could not stand in the way even of a little baby, a tiny child. What I say goes. Satan, we know this, don't we, tried to change Jesus' mind. We call it the um, 40 days temptation in the wilderness. To change his mind, to tempt him, to persuade Jesus, to take a shortcut, to take an easy way out, to change the focus of the will that had been there for so long to achieve it perhaps with his help, but Jesus wouldn't. He'd already decided how to rescue you and rescue us, he would. What I say goes, Jesus responded. As we went through Mark's gospel, we, we saw accounts, didn't we, of Jesus' own family trying to stop him. Not maliciously, probably, but they joined in with a crowd that said that he'd lost his marbles, that he'd gone mad. They wanted him to come home to stop causing such a fuss, to stop rocking the boat, but he wouldn't. What I say goes, declared Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends, tried harder than anybody else, really, with both his words and his actions, to stop Jesus doing that thing which in eternity past God had decided to do. He told Jesus that he couldn't die, that he shouldn't die. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter is the one who drew a sword and tried to fight the um, soldiers off. But Jesus rejected. He refused Peter's analysis, didn't he? He put an end to Peter's resistance. What I say goes. Jesus reaffirmed publicly, strongly, that which had been settled before the foundations of everything in Mark 10 when he declared the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I say on this matter, Jesus said, goes. He spelt it out even more clearly in John chapter 10 when he said this, no man is going to take my life, but I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it back up again. If that is not a picture, a statement of Jesus, God being in control, then I do not know what is. As the authorities then at the time, including Pilate, all disputed Jesus's ability to make such a decision and to carry such a thing out, he declared, you would have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from on high. Don't think that you're in control in this situation. It's me and it always has been. Isaiah 46 finishes up like this. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far away from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion and my splendor to Israel. What I say goes. Do you see? what God is declaring. No one has tricked him into doing this. Sometimes we can imagine that about Jesus. No one has forced him into saving people like you and I who have rejected him and continue to reject and rebel him. He chose to do this. He pleased to do this. And though we still fight against it with every breath and every fiber, he will not be turned away. His will, His sovereign will, what He says goes better than that. What He has said went because Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died and He has risen again. He is risen. He's alive again, more alive than ever, forever. Gone, He says, to prepare a place for us, that old purpose described in Ephesians 1 from before the foundation of the world, Jesus has accomplished. What I say goes. God is in control. Now, so what? If it is really good news, what, what difference should that make in our lives? We don't just want it to be a nice idea. We want to think through what difference it should practically make in our lives. And this week, as I've been thinking about this, three things specifically have struck me. As I consider Bell and Nebo and whatever those false things might be in our lives, it struck me that none of us cling to them by accident. We don't just fall into Bell worship. We don't just fall into trusting in Nebo. We don't just fall into fleeing into relationships or, or wealth or good health or things like that to feel safe and secure and satisfied. We go to those places, we go to those things because they each have their own little PR team, don't they? They all have people who will share with us their unique selling points. Bell and Nebo weren't gods by accident. People had considered what it was these gods could provide for them. When we flee to relationships, it's because we know the good things that exist in relationships. When we flee to wealth, it's because we know of the good things that money can actually provide. We believe the hype, we believe the sales pitch, even when it goes further than what the thing itself can actually deliver. Part of seeing something so wonderful about God, that He is in control, that what He says goes, 
is that we need to see and to recognize what the wrong things in our lives that we're holding on to are. We need to see and let go of the false versions that we have come to love and depend on instead of God. It's a bit like deciding to delete the filters that we've put over the photograph so that we can see the reality of what is there, of how really useless these things are. That's not to say they're, they're not beautiful things, they're not necessarily good things. As I said, I think these little statues were probably works of exceptional art, but they were utterly useless at being God. And that's really the important thing, isn't it? They were utterly useless at being God. And I'm not suggesting the things that we cling to and hope in aren't beautiful things, but when we see God and how in control He is, we see how utterly useless they are at being God for us. We need to learn to leave Bel and Nebo behind. And could put it like this, we need to learn to be skeptical of the promises that other things make. Other things which promise happiness and joy and satisfaction and long life. They may still be good things, but we need to learn to be skeptical of how much they really can promise. Learn to be skeptical, especially when they start becoming gods in our lives. Be more skeptical. I think that's a, a random point for a preacher, isn't it? But be more skeptical of things. I think that's, that's a good one. But it's more than just leaving things go. It's clinging to the right thing, isn't it? It's not just saying, do you know what, Bell? Do you know what, Nebo? You can stay over there in your uh, temples, on your altars. Fine, I've, I've abandoned you. You're gone. The whole point of Isaiah 46 is so that we turn to and we trust in and we cling to God. We need to learn to be skeptical. We need to learn to leave behind. But we also need to learn to follow Jesus wherever that leads us. I mean, that part certainly isn't rocket science for a sermon in a church. Um, I didn't spend an awful lot of time coming up with that point. Um, but specifically, we need to be learning to trust Jesus in the difficult times. Because I think what actually happens with you and I is that when life gets difficult, instead of questioning the things which have promised and failed to deliver, we question the one who has promised and will deliver. If he's in control, if what he says goes, then even when he leads us into storms, we need to learn to keep on following him. The truth of God being in control is genuinely scary and confusing, isn't it? Because we experience life and it is not all giggling and dancing and singing and smiling. And so somehow we have to comprehend of a world in which God is in control and we can still go through difficult circumstances. God in control isn't a heartwarming truth when all we are looking at is the storm clouds breaking over our heads. But it isn't a, a, a truth about God in isolation, is it? We need to remember that this God who says... And what he says goes has promised to love, 
to protect, to bless, even in the midst of suffering and distress. We need to learn then, if we're to be skeptical of everything else, that when it comes to Jesus, there's always more than meets the eye. There's always more than meets the eye. Lastly, I think, so what? We need to feel free to join in. So I used the expression earlier when I was describing God's incontrolledness, that he doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need anyone else to achieve what he's willed, what he's purposed. And that's true. He's a powerful God. He created everything that we know um, and can see and can experience entirely on his own. We know that he doesn't need anyone else. And yet, even in Isaiah 46, he speaks about achieving the things which he has decided to achieve using other people inviting other people to be a part of it. Splattered across the entire pages of the New Testament are invitations to you and I to be involved in what God has already decided that he's going to do. Just like all the truths that we learn about God, it, it necessarily introduces tension into our lives and into our thinking. If God doesn't need us, then why should we bother doing anything at all? He'll make sure that it all sorts out in the end. Happy days, day off. Our rest of our lives can be an entire weekend. Why, well, I mean, just think about it. Why does God invite us to join in what he said and what he's doing? It's certainly not out of need, is it? If we ever come to the thinking that the reason God invites you to do something, to be someone, to be a part of something, because that he is lacking, then we've totally misunderstood who God is and what he's calling us to do. But if we understand the things that God has called us to do, and the things that God has called us to be, in the sense that he is a God who is in control, and a God who loves us, then perhaps we're getting closer to the truth. God calls us to be involved with what he is doing in our world, not because he needs us, but because graciously and lovingly he invites us to be a part of what he's already doing. It should be considered by us a glorious privilege afforded to those who have been adopted into his family. There are jobs that we can do grown-ups now. I know that there's some younger people still in the room. There are jobs that we can do which genuinely we could get done a lot more quickly uh, with a lot less stress and probably to a higher finish if we just got on and did them ourselves. And yet often we'll invite people to join us and to do them as well. We'll invite our kids to join us and to do them as well. Painting a room. You can, you can paint a room, no, no offense um, to Carol. You know, if you, she really can paint a room, um, professional decorator. But we're all reasonably skilled at painting a room and we'd be happy with the job that we could do. And yet, we can conceive of a scenario where we'd invite our children to take part in that. Not because we need them, but because we love them and because we want them to be involved. It'll mean that the job is messier. 
it'll probably mean that the job will take a little bit more time. It'll probably mean that there's a little bit of stress and tension between you and the child, but you do it out of love. Not because you need them to be involved, but because you want them to be involved. Because you want your flesh and blood to be a part of what you are achieving. I think that's a close picture to how God is in control of all things. That he has this purpose, that Jesus has come to accomplish it, that he can declare, I will build my church. And yet he invites you and I to be a part of that. That Jesus is the one who says, I'm bringing God's kingdom. I will make all things new. But he invites you and I to be a part of that. Not because he needs our help, but because he loves to graciously involve us in what he is doing. This means that being part of what God has called us to be, what God has called us to do, isn't a burden. Sometimes we can open our Bibles and we can see the things that God says, you need to be this sort of person, you need to live like this, you need to be ushering in this sort of world and this sort of environment, you need to be telling this sort of person about Jesus, you need to be telling that sort of person about Jesus. And we can feel way down and we can feel burdened and we can feel sluggish and we can feel tired. And you know what, we're in a scenario where genuinely we're like those people who are literally carrying Bell and Nebo on our backs. We're wearied by it all. We need to come at it with totally different eyes, from a totally different angle, and see that this isn't a burden. God will get it done whether we are involved or not. Take that stress off yourself. This is a privilege. God invites you as his children, adopted in through Christ, to be a part of what he most certainly will achieve. Be a witness. Be a witness, Jesus says, almost his last words to the church before he ascended to heaven. Be a witness to me. It can feel like a tremendous burden. When we see that Jesus is in control, what he says goes. He has declared that his church will not just survive, but grow, will thrive. That he has come to save for himself a multitude of people for eternity. We're, we get to be a part of that. It's a privilege. When we're instructed to, to always have an answer for the hope that we have, you might feel like that's a burden. I need to learn loads of information. I need to learn the answer to people's questions about psychological crutches, about the problem of suffering, about multiple religions. I need to have answers like this about the hope that we have. I always need to be looking on the outside, smiling like everything is perfect and life is easy. It's a burden when we think of it like that. When we recognize that we can genuinely have hope-filled lives and that Jesus is the answer, then it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to be involved with sharing that with other people, isn't it? And helping other people to come to see how gloriously, wonderfully true it is that God is in control, that he does what he pleases and he pleases to save wretched, rebellious people like you and me. So I, wa I want us this week just to be asking ourselves this question. Faith, hope, and love are often held up as the three kind of hallmarks of what it is to live in God's family, to be a Christian, to be someone who's saved, someone who's filled with faith, someone who's filled with hope, someone who's filled with love. Genuinely, let's ask ourselves the question this week when we're thinking about joining in 
with what God is doing. How would my life be different if faith, hope, and love were completely erased? How would my life be different if faith, hope, and love were completely erased? How different would my life be to the person I live next door to, the person I work in the same office with, the family member that I have who I see every couple of months, who has not the same faith, the same hope, and the same love? How would my life be different? I think for most of us, that's going to be a really difficult question to ask and a very quick question to answer because it's going to be not very different at all, or at least not different enough. And so I want to ask that question and and to pair it up with this so what of feeling free to join in. It's not a burden to live differently because of Jesus, for Jesus. It's a privilege that we get to live lives that are filled with faith and hope and love. I pray that as a church we wouldn't just know the truth that Jesus is in control but we would use that to help us to flee and to leave behind and to be skeptical of all the other things that make wonderful promises but fail to deliver. I pray they would help us as a people to cling to Jesus, to see that with him there's more than meets the eye, that even heading into the storm, that is the safe place we want to remain. And I want us to feel like we are free to join in with the wonderful work that God is at work doing in our world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that sometimes we need to look elsewhere to see how worthless, how weak, how feeble, how false other things we trust in are. Help us to be a skeptical people in that sense, but help us more so to be a trusting people, a trusting in you people. Lord, it's scary to think that you are in control And that might mean that you are in control over even in circumstances that we do not want to be experiencing. But we know that you are a God who has promised and purposed to love us and bless us beyond our wildest expectations and dreams. Help us to cling to Jesus. Lord, and more than that, help us to join in. Help us to see how we are part of a family that is invited to be at work, doing our bit making our own glorious mess in the corner, perhaps, Lord, but part of what you are achieving. Help us to follow Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.